well-known sidekicks in literature, television, and film. And of course, you think of Batman and Robin, right? You think of uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Shrek and Donkey, classics, Garfield and Odie, Han Solo and Chewbacca, Maverick and Goose, anyone know what I'm talking about there? No? Nemo and Dory, and my favorite uh, sidekick in any piece of literature is from the Lord of the Rings, I think I have a picture, it's Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. You know, as it turns out, uh, these sidekicks are pretty important characters, aren't they? They're more than just uh, behind-the-scenes nobodies. They're more than just peripheral characters in the story. Actually, as we learn more about the stories of the heroes, we often tend to love the sidekicks just as much, if not more. And we realize that they're very important. And, and we, we come to learn that this is not simply a relationship between someone who's very important and someone who's not very important. These are genuine partnerships. They work together. You know, Shrek needs Donkey to talk some sense into him at times. Watson balances out and bails out Sherlock Holmes on many occasions. In uh, maybe the worst Batman movie ever made, Batman Forever, Robin saves Batman. Despite his selfishness and laziness, Garfield actually does love Odie. Uh, Maverick doesn't want to fly again without Goose as his wingman. And in the Star Wars novel Aftermath, Han Solo describes his relationship with Chewbacca by saying this, I saved him, at least that's what he says, the big fuzzy fool, but really, he saved me. Dory helps find Nemo, and then she gets her own movie. And uh, (laughs) Sam ends up really the hero of the whole story, because he's the one at the end that makes sure that Frodo finishes the task that he was given to do. These are partnerships. Last week in Judges chapter 3, we studied the story of Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite. Was that an interesting story or what? It's one of my favorite texts now to preach. He, He went at it alone. In fact, he sent people away from him, and then he went back and did his task alone. But in Judges chapter 4, we see something very different. In Judges chapter 4, it's not about doing it alone. It's about partnerships. And there's two very distinct types of partnerships that we see in Judges chapter 4. We're going to take some time this morning and look at both types of partnerships and see how important they were both in that story, but also they're tremendously important in your story too, whether you realize it or not. So in Judges chapter 4, the story begins very similar to how we read many stories in the book of Judges. It says in verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So remember we've talked about the cycle in Judges. They get rescued, they serve God, but then they fall back into idolatry. And again, they're doing evil. And it's after Ehud dies. It's interesting. Uh, Everybody is responsible for their own decisions, but clearly leadership is important. Leadership matters. And when Ehud dies, for some reason, it, it, it kind of is the catalyst for them beginning to do evil again in the sight of the Lord. And so God sells them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And Jabin, the king of Canaan, has a general, has a commander named Sisera. And Sisera is a powerful, cruel man. Sisera has 900 chariots of iron at his disposal. And it says that he, uh, the text actually says that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly 
for 20 years. It's a very uh, important descriptive adverb there. He didn't just oppress them, but he was a cruel man. And so in keeping with the cycle of judges, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And this is where we meet our main person this morning. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel would come up to her for judgment. So enter Deborah, sitting under the palm of Deborah. You might be thinking, well, what a nice coincidence. She's sitting under... No, what, what, what happens here is this story was written years later, most likely by Samuel. And at that point in history, the tree was now known as the palm of Deborah. So Samuel was actually referencing a place that the people who read the story originally would have known. And it became named that because of who she was. So she's sitting under the palm of Deborah. It wasn't called the palm of Deborah at the time, but it, it was when Samuel wrote this. Now Deborah is, is different from all the other 11 judges. The most obvious way in which she's different is she is the only female judge over the people of Israel in the book of Judges. But not only is she the only woman, she's also unique in that she's not a warrior. She's not going into battle. She's not a general. She's not a commander. She doesn't lift a sword. In fact, the way she judges Israel is very distinct from the way all the other judges lead Israel. She leads them with godly counsel and divine wisdom. That's her gift. People will come to her for, for, for insight and decisions, both on civil issues, so she was a judge in that way, but also spiritually to hear from God. They would go to Deborah. And she sat in this place between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And if you could see a map of the tribes of Israel, you'll realize that Ephraim in Israel was sort of like Syracuse is in New York. It was right in the center. So she has strategically seated herself in a place where all of Israel has access to her. And they go up to the hill country to talk with her and to get her advice. We continue in our story, verse 6. She says that she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? And now she shifts into the first tense, speaking for God. Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera. Now she's careful here. She's not saying I will. She's not saying Deborah will. She's speaking now for God. This morning, one of our leaders brought forth a word that we, we experience that sometimes when we stand and sing. And you heard him use the first person pronoun at times. He's not saying he is going to do that. He's saying God will do this. And this is what Deborah is saying here. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hands. She's reminding him of what the Lord has said. And Barak says to her, this is interesting. He says in verse 8, I will go. If, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Verse 9, she answers him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, at this point in the story, Barak, or Barak probably thinks she's talking about herself. We're going to learn that she's not. Uh, she summons Barak, and she reminds him of God's word. She gives him direction, and then there's this interesting interaction between her and him 
where he says, if you go, I go. If you don't go, I don't go. And then she says, okay, I'll go. But just so you know, you're not going to get the glory from this battle. It's going to, God's going to sell or give uh, it into the hand of a woman. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this text, here's how I read it. He has a lack of faith. She's telling him to go, and he's saying he needs his safety blanket. I'm not going unless you go. And she kind of concedes but says, as a result of your lack of faith, now you're not going to get the glory. Someone else is going to get the glory. That's what I've always thought and read. We're going to see later that's actually not what's happening here. That's not the situation, but we'll get to that in a little bit. All right, so Barak obeys. He gathers 10,000 men from the northern tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Deborah goes with him. Sisera, this cruel ruler or this crueler, uh, this cruel captain, he finds out or he's told. And so he, he calls all his chariots, his 900 chariots of iron. He gets all his men together and they go to the river Kishon to fight. Now the Israelites are in Mount Tabor. They're gathered up in the mountains and the river Kishon is down next to the plains. It doesn't take a war strategy genius to realize if you're fighting an army with chariots, you don't want to fight them in the plains. You want to fight them in the mountains. The advantage would be to be in the mountains. But Sisera, uh, Deborah says to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak actually comes down from the mountain with his 10,000 men to fight Sisera in their 900 chariots of iron in the plains next to the river. Verse 15 says that the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots, in all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Now, in week one, I talked about the language in, in Judges. When it says not a man was left, we don't know if that's literal or if that's what's called war rhetoric. And if you're interested in that conversation, go listen to week one. But whatever it is, the battle is won, and the people are destroyed. Now, this is a really unexpected turn of events. For Sisera to lose in the plains with his 900 chariots of iron. Now, chariots of iron don't sound very impressive to us in 2017, but this was cutting-edge war technology back then. These, these chariots, in addition to being made of iron, out of the wheels they had these long spears and blades. And so actually these chariots would slice through infantry like, hot, like a knife through hot butter. I mean, they would just go right through and people would be getting severely injured. So 10,000 men against 900 chariots, it might seem like the 10,000 has the advantage, but it doesn't it, because of the technology. You know, there's all sorts of new technology now. And you want the best technology if you're going to battle. I was actually looking up this week some, new, some of the newest technology. And this is only what you can find online. I'm sure there's new stuff that no one's allowed to talk about. But you know that there are now self-steering bullets. Bullets that when you shoot them, they will readjust mid-flight and steer towards the thing that they're supposed to hit. There are now, this sounds like something from the future, laser cannons. Not shooting bullets, they're just shooting lasers at things. And then this was the coolest one I read about, plasma protection fields. Plasma protection fields. This stuff exists now. This is cutting-edge war technology. Well, back then, iron chariots were the equivalent of this. And when the people of Israel went out to fight, they didn't have the same sort of stuff. But God goes before the army and defeats Sisera. And I like how the ESV says that he, he routed them. 
It was like a rout. It wasn't even a close battle. He just destroyed him. So Sisera runs away, and, and Barak actually goes chasing after the army. Sisera seems to escape. And so this is where the story uh, in Judges 4 starts to focus in a little more. It goes from broad to narrow. And Sisera flees away to the tent of Jael. And Jael is the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now, what's, what we need to know is that there was a peace or a covenant relationship between Jabin, the king, and the house of Kenite. So they actually had this covenant together. We'll look out for you, you look out for us, Jabin the king of Canaan, and Heber the Kenite. So when Sisera runs to this tent, he thinks this is a place of safety. These are my friends. We have a covenant relationship. And so he goes and Jael comes out to meet Sisera, this woman, and she says, turn aside to me, Lord, turn aside, don't be afraid. And he says, please give me a little water to drink, I'm thirsty. And in keeping with the hospitality of the ancient Near Eastern culture, she not just gives him water, she gives him a little bit of milk. And then actually in Judges chapter 5, which is a song about Judges chapter 4, we, we find more details. She didn't just give him milk, she gave him like some curdles or, or something to actually snack on and eat. And he says to her, stand at the front of your tent, and if anyone comes and says, is anyone here, say no. Okay. So Sisera's army's been defeated, but now he's hiding in the tent of this woman named Jael, who seems to be protecting him. We pick up the story in verse 21, and it says this. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Nice little summary statement there. So in case you don't get the picture, so he died. This reminds you a little bit of Ehud, right? Driving something through someone. So she, she, she takes a tent peg, she takes a hammer. In this culture, actually, was the, the woman's role was actually to, when the tent was going up, they were the ones who actually went and hammered in the pegs all around. So, so she was proficient with the tent peg and with the hammer. And he's lying there, and she walks up to him softly. Once again, it feels like it's a spy movie. She walks up to him softly, and she puts the tent peg against his head and kills him. This is Deborah's prophecy coming true, that Sisera would be sold into the hand of a woman. Incredibly humiliating for a powerful general to die at a hand of a woman in this culture. Incredibly humiliating. Now, Barak shows up. He's, he's chasing Sisera again. Jael goes out and says, come on, I'll show you the man that you're seeking. He walks into the tent, and there's Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And the story ends this way in verse 23. So on that day... God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And we see in the end of chapter 5 that after this victory comes 40 years of rest. Okay. So two things that I think we have to notice in this story. Two types of partnerships. And the first... One is this, and my first thought is this, it's simply the necessity of partnering with each other. The necessity, not the option, not the luxury, but the necessity of partnering with each other. This is what maybe we could describe as a horizontal partnership, person to person. And we see Deborah and Barak, we see them working together. Despite their obvious differences, they work together. For God's purposes. And this is, my, this is what I'm saying to you this morning. That the work of the kingdom of God happens best when different types of people with different types of abilities 
will work together. I believe that. That the work of the kingdom happens best when different types of people with different types of abilities and different types of personalities and different types of backgrounds and from different types of cultures, when we work together, that's when the kingdom of God advances best, this sort of partnership. Now, Deborah and Barak, they recognize each other's strengths in the story. Deborah is hearing the plea from the Israelites, we're, we're in bondage, this guy Sisera, he's cruel, she's hearing stories and anecdotes of the things that he's doing to them and to their people and to their children, and Deborah's saying something needs to be done, but she knows that she's not the one to do it, because she's a prophetess, she's not a general, she's not a military person, and so she recognizes, I need a partner, and she calls Barak, a Barak is the general. He comes up, and he says, all right. But then there's that weird interaction that we talked about earlier. He says, if you go, I'll go. If you don't go, I won't go. And what every commentator says, I mean, I looked through about a dozen commentaries on this chapter, and every commentator says this is not a lack of faith on the part of Barak. This is an acknowledgement that he needs the presence of God to go with him. He says, she says, I'm a prophetess. I need a general. And here's what he's saying. I'm a general. I need a prophetess. In other words, I'm not going to go without your wisdom and your counsel right by my side the whole way. Without someone that can speak the word of God to me. And remember, once they get to the battle scene on the mountain, she has to speak the word again to him. What if she didn't go with him? And he did what was made common sense from a military standpoint. He never would have left the mountain. He would have stayed in the mountain. So this was not a lack of faith. In fact, this is reminiscent of Exodus 33, where God tells Moses, get up out of here and, and, and I'll follow you. And Moses says, no, that's, I'm not doing it in that order. I'm not, you don't follow me anywhere. I'll go, but you go first. And so it's the same sort of, it's actually a statement of faith that I'm not going to rely upon my military uh, insights. I'm not going to rely upon my experience and upon the fact that I have 10,000 men with me ready to fight. I don't want to rely on any of that alone. I need the word of God, the servant of God, the prophet of God to go with me. And so they work together. And you know what else this connection of Deborah and Barak, the prophet, and the general would have reminded the people of Israel of? It would have reminded them of Moses and Joshua, right? Moses was a prophet. Joshua was what? He was a general. And different types of leaders for different seasons. Isn't that true? God knew that, you know, when, when he was trying to form a civil, spiritual nation, they needed a prophet who could hear from God and speak God's word. But when it was time to go to battle, Moses wasn't the right person to do that. And so he raises up Joshua. And so we see this partnership, this human partnership that we, we work together. You know, working together, by the way, requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness on your part. Not just knowing what you're good at, but knowing what you're not good at. The last thing that you want to be doing in the kingdom of God is trying to accomplish something that you don't have the gifts to do. Deborah would have been a disaster if Deborah tried to lead these men into battle, and it would have been a disaster if Barak tried to hear from God. And so when we, when we work together, we have this self-awareness of this is what I'm good at, but this is what I'm not good at. And, and, and instead of feeling down about the things that you're not good at and looking at the gifts that you don't have and wishing that you had them, you should look around a room like this and go, thank God I'm in a community of people because I don't have that gift, but they have that gift. And it's, it's necessary that we work together because the things that get done in the kingdom get done best when we work together. Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the 19th century American writer, said this, there is no limit to what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. 
It's been quoted many times by guys like John Wooden and Ronald Reagan. It, it's, there's no limit, and that's true in the kingdom of God too, and in, in, in this church. There's no limit to what God can do if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Who cares who gets the glory? And that's the other part of what she said. When she said, you're not going to get the glory, but a woman is, many men in that culture would have said, then I'm out. I'm not interested. That's embarrassing. A woman is going to get the glory for this battle? He doesn't care because he doesn't care who's going to get the glory. He knows ultimately all the glory belongs to God. And so he's going to battle anyway. So this sort of humility that it takes to know what we're good at, but also what we're not good at. Instead of just focusing on the things that we don't have and where our cupboard is bare and saying, God, why didn't you give me that gift? Just realize he gave that gift. It's to somebody in your life. It's to somebody in your church. He gave you all the gifts. Guess what? You wouldn't need to work with others. So he doesn't do that. The other thing that's interesting about this idea of working together is when I look at this text, I see actually a lot of Old Testament stories. God puts a lot of emphasis on skill, on skill. When he's having the temple built, he doesn't just say, hey, go find some dudes on the side of the road that can swing a hammer. He says, get the most skilled craftsmen that you can find. When he wants music played, he doesn't say, hey, find somebody that just picked up a guitar yesterday. He says, find the skilled musicians. Now, listen, this is tricky for us because sometimes in the church world, we, we just say, well, if you're just available and willing, we'll just, you just do it. And we don't want to... God is looking at the skill also. The, and it's not just about skill so that you can draw attention to yourself, but it's about being stewards of the gifts that God has given you. And so being skillful, whether it's music, whether it's building, whether it's teaching, whether it's uh, working in the sound room, whether it's doing the projection, whatever it is, there is a, there's a skill. But sometimes we say, well, if you're willing and available, just go ahead and do it. And I, I think sometimes it hurts the church because what, what happens is people who don't have a specific skill end up serving in a specific place And what that means is, not only is that not as good as it could be, but someone over here who has that skill isn't able to get in there because someone's already doing it. And so skill matters. And we know it matters in every other area of our lives. If I were to say, um, you know, this week you need surgery on your heart. And I was like, here's two surgeons, best in the state. Best in the state. A little bit of a jerk. Not great bedside manner, but the best surgeon in the state. This guy is the nicest guy in the world. You're going to love this guy. He's not, his, his, his survival rates aren't so great when he does surgery. You know, it's not, you're not going to be like, well, he's, he's got a good heart. I'm, he's got a good heart. I don't have a good heart, but he's got a good heart. And, and I'm going to go with him. No, what do we say? I want the best. I want the skillful person. And so while the church is a place for people to develop their gifts and to grow in their gifts, there is something to be said for He was looking for, there's a skillful prophetess in the story, and there's a skillful general in this story, and skill and training, it matters. So all of this to say, we're better together, right? When we come together and we stand shoulder to shoulder, we benefit from each other. And this morning, actually, in children's church, your students or your children are learning about how on God's team, we can't win alone. We, we need each other. You don't go into this battle alone. You go shoulder to shoulder. And let me ask you this question. How, in what ways are you partnering in this local church? If this church is your church body, if you call this your church home, how are you partnering? What are you doing to contribute? Because you have a gift and a skill that the body needs, that we would benefit from. And if you come here every Sunday morning and you say, I, I just show up and listen and go, Well, I want to challenge you, take the next step, partner, jump in, 
Find something that, you know, and tell us, here's the things I, I love to do. Are you, here's one example. Are you uh, comfortable on a computer? Okay, because you might walk in here Sunday mornings and go, I can't do that. I can't stand up and sing and play an instrument. I'm not comfortable greeting people. I don't want to do this. But are, are, you, are you comfortable on a computer? Well, if you're comfortable on a computer, there's someone every Sunday morning who is faithfully working on the computer in the back so that you guys can see the things that are on the wall. We need more people doing that. We have a small rotation of people who do that. We need to train more people to do that. So could you do that? Most of you probably could figure it out pretty quick. So there are different ways where you can partner. How are you joining in the work of the kingdom? What are your strengths? What are the opportunities? There are still needs that exist. Not every need is being met. And so let's partner together. We need to partner with each other. We need to work together. It is absolutely necessary. Okay. So that's the first partnership we see in this story, the horizontal one. And it's necessary. The second partnership, and this is my second point, is simply this. We go from the necessity of partnering with each other to the mystery of partnering with God. The mystery of partnering with God. So we were talking about the horizontal partnership, and now we're talking about a vertical partnership. Oh, God is at work in this story, isn't he? It was pretty obvious when we were reading it. But partnering with God, it's a mystery at times. I want to give you two reasons why partnering with God is a mystery. And the first reason that partnering with God is a mystery is simply this, because our God is always doing something new. <laughs> our God is always up to something new, and it makes it a bit of a mystery. What are you doing now? What are you doing next? God is, you know, the God that we serve is not stuck in a rut. He's not out of ideas. He's not a stationary target. He's not predictable in his ways. He's not providing us formulas to memorize. He's providing us a person to trust. It's very different. We want formulas to memorize because then we can categorize and quantify and understand who God is and how he works. But God doesn't give us that. He, he rarely repeats himself. Now, don't mishear me. He, his character never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever in his character, and his, that he is holy and just and loving and merciful. Those things don't change. But his ways, the ways in which he partners with us, it's always changing. It's always, it's always new. And he's not providing us just with things to memorize and try to copy and do again. He's saying, just walk with me. As we sang this morning, just trust and obey. Imagine that you're, this is a long time ago for some of you, but imagine your first date. You're going out on your first date and you're excited and you call up the other person. What's your favorite type of food? Oh, I love pasta. I love Italian food. Okay, perfect. What's the perfect time to pick you up? Six o'clock. Okay, all right. So you make your plans. You make reservations at the best Italian restaurant in Syracuse, which is, would be a huge debate if we talked about it probably. But the best Italian restaurant in Syracuse and you go to Francesca's or Asti's or Stantangelo's or whatever you like. And it's, you sit down and greatest waiter you've ever had. And there's a special that, that night. It's a, it's a two-for-one meal. It's a, it's a lover's delight. It's a share the meal together, which, by the way, is a bold order on your first date. Very bold. But, but you go for it. You go for it. You guys are going gonna to share. And you eat it and, and you enjoy it. And it's the, perfect, it's the perfect date. Perfect first date. Best thing you could ever imagine. And you say, can I take you out again? Of course. All right, next Friday night, I'll pick you up at 6 o'clock, exact same time. You show up, you pick her up, get in the car, you drive straight to the same restaurant, same table, same waiter, same meal. And at first she's thinking, 
How romantic. He's recreating our first date on our second date. This is so sweet and unique. And, but then the next Friday, the same. The next Friday, the same. Four years into marriage, every Friday night, the same. And I think at one point what you're going to hear is, hey, honey, I like this place. Like, I enjoy this place. But eventually, could you ask me, what do I want to do today? What am I hungry for today? Where do I want to go tonight? Not where did we go on a Friday. It was great. It was amazing. But let's not live there. Let's not try to recreate that every week. Let's actually have not just a memorial to who our first date, but let's have an ongoing relationship where it requires us to say, tonight I want tacos and I want to go late or tonight I want to stay home. And sometimes in our journey with God, he's such a mystery to us. And because we don't like mystery as human beings and we don't like change, we don't like change. Just, just see how angry you are next time your phone updates its operating system on you. you or next time Facebook changes how, it, how you interact with it. People get so angry every time something changes. We don't like any of that. And so we look at God and we say, God, this was the best I ever had it with you. Now let's recreate it over and over. It's got to be the same songs. It's got to be the same place. It's got to be the same, all the same stuff. And God's saying, how about you ask me, what do I want to do today? He's always doing something new. And in this story, I mean, look at, he goes from Ehud to Deborah, from a man to a woman, from a Benjaminite to someone from the tribe of Ephraim, from a warrior to someone who was marked by wisdom, from a rescuer to a ruler, from someone who worked alone to someone who worked as a team, from someone who killed the leader first and then the army. In the next story, the army is killed first and then the leader is killed last. Ehud gets the glory, Deborah doesn't get the glory. We're like, God, do you have any patterns here at all? Are you doing anything the same? How We need to figure out what Gideon's going to look like. And if we don't know what Ehud and Deborah look like, then how... And God's saying, I'm, I'm always doing something new. I'm always up to something new. You know, I, I, I want to jump just for a second to Gideon. Now, Gideon's next, although he's in three weeks because we have Mother's Day and then Sister Sylvia. You remember the story of Gideon? Gideon's fighting against the Midianites. It's a different tribe. And God says, gather men. Do you remember this? 32,000. Am I right with that? Is it 32? 32,000 soldiers come to fight. Gideon's like, oh, this is pretty good. And God says, you have too many. So the, he runs them through this. He says, if you're afraid, go home. All the scaredy cats, go home. 22,000 leave. And now he's left with 10,000. Now, I never thought of this before, but hold on. How many men did Barak have? No, Barak, this story. 10,000 men. God told Barak, go get 10,000 men. Now, I have to think that after Barak wins this battle, this story was told all over Israel. And the story would have sounded something like this. Barak and his 10,000 men took on 900 chariots of iron. And so that phrase would have been burned into the mind of every Israelite, including Gideon. Barak and his 10,000 men. Barak and his 10,000 men. Barak and his 10,000 men. And Gideon has 32,000 men, which he's feeling good about. And God says, tell the scared ones to leave. And Gideon says, okay, do a quick count who we got left. And they say, Gideon, we have 10,000 men left. And I have to think Gideon thought, ah, oh, I get it. God's doing the same thing. He's doing it again. It was Barak and 10,000 men, and now it's going to be Gideon and 10,000 men. And so when God comes to Gideon and says, you still have too many, here's what was happening, I think. And I'll say this again probably in three weeks because I like this so much. He's not just challenging Gideon's natural thinking about battle. 
He's actually challenging his theology. Gideon, you think I'm going to do it like I did it before. I'm not. I'm not. Because I'm always doing something new. This is the mystery. I mean, this is the mystery of partnering with God. Moses, first time, strike the rock, water comes out. Second time, he's supposed to speak to it. But what does he do? He strikes it twice. He doubles his old efforts. Now, how guilty are we of that sometimes in our own spiritual life? This worked five years ago. I'm going to do it twice as hard this time. This worked in the church 10 years ago. We're just going to work harder at it, the same thing. And God's saying, maybe it's not the same thing. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's something new. And this is the mystery of partnering with God. And we see it in this story. So what does this mean in our lives? First off, it means in your life that God is asking you to trust him in new ways and in new seasons. It, it just, don't try and reduce God to a formula that you figure out, but, but lean into the relationship, lean into his heart. That's why we're instructed in scriptures to pray without ceasing and to be in the scriptures and to gather to hear teaching of the scriptures because we need to hear his voice, not just 20 years ago, but we need to hear his voice today because he's always doing something new. But also, what does it mean for us as a church, as Trinity Assembly of God? What is this idea that God is always up to something new? What does it mean for us? Well, one thing it means for us is is this. Let me suggest this, that what got us here won't get us there. What got us to where we are as a church won't necessarily get us to where God is leading us. And it's okay it's okay. You know, sometimes when things change and things shift, people feel threatened or they feel like the past is being dishonored and disrespected. Or, or actually, here's the real issue that happens sometimes. They think, well, if you're changing the way it works, then are you saying that what worked for me wasn't valid, wasn't true? And it actually invalidates in their mind sometimes their old encounters with God because a new encounter looks different. And here's the thing. It's not the encounter. It's God. It's not the way it looked. It's who was at the center of it. So the way God encounters people in 2017 in a local church, it may look different than the way he encountered people in 1957 in a local church. And we can shake our fists and get upset about it and say, why can't we just go back to the good old days? Or we can say it's a mystery and God's always doing something new. But he's move, we, we can move with him. We can move with him. Here's the, here's the, last, here's the sentence that every dying church, here are the last words of every dying church. We've never done it that way before. That's the last, with, the, with their last breath, a dying church says, we've never done it that way before. Or, or the inverse, we've always done it this way. And God's saying, yeah, yeah, but are you in a relationship with what happened 40 years ago? Or are you in a relationship with a living, active God who's speaking today and saying, There's new, it's a new season. There's new times. There's new ways. Listen, lost people today are not like lost people 40 years ago. I mean, you know that, right? Our culture has completely changed. And instead of shaking our fists and and yelling at the culture and getting angry at them, we need to hear from God. Say, God, how do we reach people who don't believe in truth? How do we reach people who have all these questions and confusions about gender? How do we reach people who don't believe in morals? How do we reach people who think church is irrelevant? How do we reach people who have seen churches fail over and over and over and don't trust institutions? How do we reach people? Well, it isn't going to be what it was. It just isn't. And it's okay because God is still speaking today. You know, in in Numbers chapter 21, there's a very interesting story where the Israelites are uh, disobeying and grumbling again, and God sends these serpents to bite them. Remember the story? Uh, God sends these serpents to bite them. It's Numbers chapter 21. And God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent. 
and hold the serpent up. And, he, and Moses holds the serpent up and he says, people, look at the serpent and when you look, you'll be healed and delivered. It's a, it's a call to worship, really. It's look and live. It's a foreshadowing to Jesus on the cross. But I think I've shared this before, but you know, this, the, the, this bronze serpent shows up again in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, King Hezekiah has to destroy the bronze serpent. Why? Because people were worshiping it. So here's what, I'm, here's what I'm saying. What God told one leader to make, he told another leader to destroy. Because they were worshiping the tool and not the God. They're worshiping his ways and not him. And so this has significant implications, not just for our church, but for every church in this community. The churches that are going to die, the churches that are going to cease to be effective in this world today are the ones who say, we've never done it that way before. But if you're going to reach people who no one else is reaching, you've got to do stuff that no one else is doing. And trust God through the whole journey. So the first reason why it's a mystery is because our God is always up to something new. But our last thought this morning is this. It's a mystery because our God is sovereign. I want to talk a little bit about this. You might have noticed this when we read it. I'm going to put this verse back up, verses 23 and 24. Did you notice? This is a little confusing. It seems like it contradicts itself. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, skip to verse 24, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until what? Until they destroyed Jabin. So which is it? Verse 23 says, God subdued Jabin. He did it. Verse 24 says, um, the Israelites had to keep fighting and fighting and fighting, and eventually they destroyed Jabin. Now, who, defe- who actually defeated Jabin? Was it God or was it the Israelites? Did God win the battle or did the Israelites? Who struck down those 900 chariots? Was it God or was it Ber- Barak and his people? This, this whole question makes me think of one of my favorite fictional characters is uh, a guy named Michael Scott, who was a manager of a fictional paper shop called Dunder Mifflin. And uh, one time he was, he, he was asked the question, as a leader, do you want people to love you or fear you more? And he said, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> it's one of my favorite answers. This question is the same answer. Is it God or is it Israel? Both. Yes. That's the answer. Now, it's both God and Israel. Yes, God subdued Jabin, but Israel also destroyed Jabin. God's, God was at work. Now, Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 go hand in hand, and we just don't have the time this morning for me to teach both texts. But Judges chapter 5 is the only passage in all of the book of Judges that is not written in the genre of historical narrative. It's a poem. It's a song. They're singing about what happened in Judges chapter 4. So Judges 4 gives us the events, and Judges 5 gives us a song. And in the song, it becomes clear that when uh, Sisera and his 900 chariots came down into the plains by the river Kishon, something went bad. And what went bad is God caused the river to flood in such a way that it was somewhat reminiscent of what happened when Pharaoh's chariots tried to go through the Red Sea. The, The chariots got stuck. They couldn't go. So their strength was negated. How? Now, did, did uh, Deborah make the river overflow? No, she doesn't have that power. Did, um, did Barak make the river overflow? No, that was God. But then who had to actually go and run towards those stuck chariots with their swords out and destroy the people? It was the Israelites. 
Now, this is, a, this is a real tension that we have in our Christian life because on one hand, God is always, he's always the central actor. He's always the protagonist. He is always the main person in the story, but he chooses to work with us. That's the mystery. He partners with us. And so we're stuck with this great mystery that has really, uh, in many ways, divided Christianity throughout uh, history, which is God's sovereignty and human free will. God is going to do what God is going to do, but then he tells us that we should pray. God already knows what we need before he asks, but he says pray without ceasing. So which is it? Do we, and you, I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, like if God already knows what's going to happen tomorrow, why am I praying today? It's a mystery. And somehow, somehow, it's both. Now Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers and thinkers in Christianity, said this one time. He was, he was asked the question, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of humankind. And he basically said, I don't try. You don't, you don't reconcile friends. You don't need to reconcile friends. I've never had to reconcile friends. And this is what he says. Divine sovereignty, which is God in charge, God in control, God calling the shots. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. And he goes on to say this. Where these two truths meet... I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. Now that's a mystery, believing them both. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in human responsibility. So he embraced divine sovereignty and human responsibility because they're both taught in Scripture. And that's why this is such a debate in Christian circles, because there actually is great Scripture on both sides of the conversation. And I respect people who fall really anywhere in this conversation. But there's the sovereignty of God. Now, if you fall too far to the side of it's all the sovereignty of God and he's in control and we're just little robots down here and we don't have a say in what we do, that's, that's almost like fatalism. It's like, why do anything then? Why evangelize? Why tell people about Jesus if he already has decided who is going to know him and who isn't going to know him? So it, it can feel like it's that side. Now, that's a little bit of a straw man of that argument, but it can feel that way. And then on the other side, where it's like all human free will and God is just along for the ride, that's dangerously man-centered. And God is just like us. He's reactionary. He's just kind of trying to figure it out. You know, God is, God's not reactionary. He's, he's, not, he's not caught off guard. He's not uns- he, doesn't know, he knows all of these things. And so we have this idea of God is sovereign, but we have responsibility, And in God's design, human responsibility somehow is not eliminated by his sovereignty. And it's just a mystery. We don't really know. And it's in this story. God uses evil people to accomplish his purpose. Does that ever bother you? It bothered Habakkuk. It bothered him a lot when God said, I'm going to raise up these evil nations to come punish. Habakkuk basically says to God, you will not. No. Surely you won't do that. I mean, we're not great, but they're terrible. You're not going to use them to punish us. God uses the king of Jabin, and he uses the general Sisera to punish his people. In fact, it's said in verse 1, or sorry, it said in verse 2, that God sold his people into their hands. God did it. He was responsible for it. But did they do anything? In verse 1, they did what was evil in his sight. You have this collision together. And then what about J.L.? Now, we haven't talked a lot about her. Is she a hero? Is she a villain? Is she someone that we should be like? She lied. 
She said, come on in the tent. It's warm in here. It's nice in here. It's safe in here. Come on. Here's some milk, little baby. Lie down. This is going to be a nice little nap time. And then she goes off and grabs a tent peg. It's like, she lies to him. She murders him. She totally, um, totally goes against the culture of hospitality. And she breaks a covenant that, that, that they had together. Now, this is a very helpful moment to stop and say what I said in week one, which is this. When we read stories like this, sometimes they are descriptive, but not prescriptive. They describe what happened accurately, but they're not prescribing what should always happen. So don't get any crazy ideas. This is, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. Next Sunday morning on Mother's Day, we're not giving out tent pegs and hammers as gifts to all the moms. When we look at JL, here's what we learn, that God, listen to this very carefully, God is able to incorporate the free activities of human beings into his plan for his own glory and for the salvation of his people. God does it. I don't know how he does it. Somehow we have will, and sometimes, and somehow he plans it all out. Somehow. And God may at times allow what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And, and that's very difficult for us to wrap our little human minds around. It's a mystery. It makes this partnership a mystery. Now, let me close with this. It's a mystery because even our personal salvation is caught up in this mystery. Did you save yourself or did God save you? Did you call to God or did God call to you? And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul perfectly captures this tension. He says this in verse 12 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only as much in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this phrase. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you just stop there, it's like, well, it's all on us. You want to be saved and you want to stay saved? You better work hard. You better work it out with fear and trembling. But thankfully, it goes on to verse 13, and it says, because it's just a comma, not a period. For it is God who works in you. Both what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what Paul's saying. Serve God. But guess who gives you the power to serve God? God. You need God to want God. You're not going to desire God without God working in you to create your will, to shape your will, and to give you actually the pleasure in serving him. On our own, there's no pleasure in serving God. All the pleasure is in serving ourselves. So Paul is really leaning into this tension of, you got a responsibility, but don't ever forget that the only reason you even have the privilege of the responsibility is because God's at work in you. And so if you don't realize that God is working in you and it's really God's work, that salvation is ultimately his work, that he always initiates salvation, that he always calls out to the sinner, that he wakens your heart up with grace so that you would even acknowledge your need for him. If you don't lean into that, then you're going to either be arrogant or anxious. You're either going to, we talked about last week, you're either going to think you qualified yourself for salvation or you're going to think that you are constantly disqualifying yourself for salvation. You're arrogant spiritually or you're anxious all the time. But if you don't realize that you also have the human responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you'll be lazy, you'll be an ineffective Christian, and you'll be unresponsive to the gospel, and there will be no fruit in your life. So we're left with this mystery of partnering with a sovereign God. Is it his work, or is it ours? I'll finish with this story. When Lily and Caroline were little, before they could walk, uh, they would always call out to me to pick them up. They always want to, they want to go where daddy's going or where mommy's going. They don't just, just want to sit there. But they had an interesting way of asking me. This is what they would always say. Daddy, I hold you. I hold you. I hold you. And so I'd go and I'd scoop them up in my arms. And if you had walked up to us in that moment and said, Caroline, Lilia, what are you doing? They would have said this. I'm holding dad. I'm holding dad. 
But listen, who's holding who, right? Who's holding who? I'm holding them, which enables them to hold me. It's not their grasp on me that keeps them secure. It's my grasp on them. And so it is with God and salvation. You can hold on to God, and you need to hold on to God, but the only reason you even have the opportunity to hold on to God is because he's holding on to you. And it's not your grasp on him that keeps you secure. It's his grasp on you. And it's the mystery of partnering with him. I want to finish this morning in a different way. I want us to listen to a song together. The words are going to be on the screen for you, and it's simply called, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's one of my favorite songs. I actually think it's very appropriate to end this sermon with a song, because after Judges 4 comes Judges 5. How's that for great insight? After 4 comes 5. And 5 is a song. And songs help us because 4 gives us the details, but 5 captures our heart and our imagination and our wonder. So this song I love because it focuses on some of you, as you just sit and listen, let these words just wash over you the truth that until our faith is turned to sight, he's going to hold us fast. He's holding on to you. Let's listen to this song together.